the center of your life. It is everything you hear. Everything you see. Everything you feel. It is everything you are. How would you know if someone stole your mind? Arrest that woman! Hold up! My guest today is Matt McManus. Matt is a lecturer at the University of Michigan and the author of The Emergence of Postmodernity, amongst other books. But today we're discussing the enduring relevance of Philip K. Dick, an article published by Matt that not only inspired this episode, but also inspired me to go read everything else Matt has written. What's up, Matt? Uh, it's good to meet you, man. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you liked that article. Uh, I wrote that a long time ago. Uh, when I was just like plumbing through his books. So I'm glad it's had a, a bit of a shelf life, got to say. Yeah, it's well, it's new to me. And it, you know what? The article itself has an enduring relevance. So but that was a 2019 article? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I wrote that when I was authoring uh, a book called The Rise of Postmodern Conservatism, um, where I was reading all kinds of like POMO literature and Dick just kept on coming up. Uh, so, you know, it's kind of fun to be going back to this. It's something I haven't delved into for a while. So thanks for having me on. I was a uh, I was interested in like some of your other stuff and uh, one of your books, and that's how I ended up on your website, and then that's how I ended up I ended up scrolling your backlog and finding this. Uh, but shoot, uh, to all the listeners who are not familiar with Philip K. Dick, you might not recognize his name, but you would definitely recognize the films and television shows that have been based on his work over the last few decades after his death in 1982, such as Blade Runner, Total Recall. A Scanner Darkly, Minority Report, uh, The Man in the High Castle, Screamers, etc. I could go on and on. And actually, I believe there's several more films you could you could say that just were not attributed to him. But I personally, I have watched movies and been like, this is a Philip K. Dick uh, inspired film. Uh, Philip Kindred Dick, uh, born December sixteenth, nineteen twenty eight, died March second, nineteen eighty two, was an American science fiction writer. He wrote 44 novels and 121 short stories during his lifetime. His fiction explored varied philosophical and social questions, such as the nature of reality, perception, human nature, and identity, and commonly featured characters struggling against elements such as alternate realities, illusory environments, monopolistic corporations, drug abuse, authoritarian governments, and altered states of consciousness. Obviously, that's a very brief description of a prolific and complex author. Uh, do you have any, any anything you would add to the summarization uh, for the people that are unfamiliar with Philip K. Dick? No, not at all. Uh, just to say that if you don't think you've ever encountered any of his work, 100% you have. Uh, you know, if you fucking turn on a television in the last 10 years, you've watched something that is either based on one of Dick's works or 
really heavily Kriven it. So uh, if you haven't read one of his novels, I can 100% encourage you to go out and read them because uh, believe me, um, some of the stuff we'll talk about today is kind of intellectually heady uh, and, you know, we'll throw out maybe a couple of big terms, but Dick is an amazing author and he's a lot of fun and his books are really easy to read. So you're yeah. doing yourself a favor uh, by going out and picking up a couple of books and they're not expensive either. Yeah. And they're like a fast read kind of reminds me of like a, like a Kurt Vonnegut book. You pick up one and you can kind of read the whole thing in a day or two. Oh, hundred percent. And I mean, that's not a coincidence either. Right. I mean, people forget nowadays uh, sci-fi is kind of a prestige genre, you know, um, yeah. you know, you have sci-fi movies that win Academy Awards and, you know, people will talk about the canon of sci-fi. But when Dick was getting started, it was really considered just like an iota above, you know, comic books, uh, and, you know, silver gold age comic books in terms of his prestige. So a lot of his stuff came out in really pulpy magazines uh, yeah. that absolutely nobody would pay any attention to. Uh, and it's really quite remarkable because from my in my opinion, he was one of the most creative uh, and imaginative American authors of the 20th century uh, and probably the one who's had the most lasting impact on the broader culture. Yeah. Outside of even sci-fi, who else, you know, wrote a short story in 1958 that's getting turned into a major motion picture now, like starring Tom Cruise. And that's exactly 100%. what Philip K. Dick did. <laughs> exactly. And it's a brilliant story, right? Uh, and you almost have to think like, it reminds me of uh, when I was fucking 12 years old, right? I read um, the Infinity Saga with Thanos, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. Uh, and I was kind of just blown away when in uh, whatever it was, I think it was 2018. Yeah. Like the Infinity Gauntlet movie came out or Infinity War. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I can't believe that like that little fucking comic book yeah. that I read when I was 12 is now like a, $300 million movie with like all these big actors, these giant special effects just blew me away. Uh, you don't imagine what it would have been like if you were like a kid in the 1950s or 60s, like reading a short Philip K. Dick story thinking, oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then a couple of decades later, there's Tom Cruise or Arnold Schwarzenegger, whoever on the screen, uh, you know, actually enacting this story. It must have been quite an experience to see that. Yeah. To your point, too, I guess. I didn't really quite think of that, but the, like, yeah, the the people that, that that act in these movies are always the largest movie stars that have ever existed. Because Arnold Schwarzenegger, uh, uh, who's that uh, guy from Indiana Jones? Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford? Yeah. yeah, Harrison Ford, Tom Cruise. It's like these are not small movies, but yeah, like for for instance, Minority Report. What is that? Like a five page story that they turned into this huge, huge film. Oh, same thing with Total Recall. Uh, and I mean. People should watch, uh, I mean, even there, there's been a remake, right? Uh, people should watch the Arnold Schwarzenegger one. Uh, yeah. Colin Farrell's a good actor, but don't bother with the remake, right? But I mean, that was just a really fucking short story called uh, We Can Remember For You Wholesale, right? Yeah. Not long at all. And <laughs> it turns into these giant bloated movies, uh, some of which are actually pretty good. So 100%, right? Uh, I mean, I also sometimes wonder what his publishers might think. Uh, I don't know who actually owns the rights to these things. But you got to imagine, you probably got a story from Philip K. Dick in the 1950s and 60s and paid him a couple bucks for it. And now all of a sudden yeah. it's being made into a $300 million motion picture, uh, not including, you know, advertising, all the money that's going to be making from merch, like just, just incredible stuff. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, um, I guess moving into, you know, uh, what you had written, uh, the enduring relevance of Philip K. Dick, most people are familiar with him because of this Hollywood, Hollywoodification of all of his stuff, but his work is extremely thoughtful. It's philosophical. It's prophetic. It's, it's really incredible stuff. It's like, it's books. 
these are the kind of books I, you know, when I first got into Philip K. Dick, I remember I would, I would read one of his novels and then put it down and be emotionally affected by it you know, oh, yeah. for a while, uh, which is not the kind of thing I would say, like after I watched Total Recall with Arnold, I loved it, but I wasn't like really made me think. <laughs> oh, 100 percent. Right. Uh, I mean, there's a reason he's considered to be like the god of sci-fi and especially thoughtful or philosophical sci-fi. Um I think probably one of the best examples of this would be uh, his book, Ubik, right? Uh, which was once considered his best book. I personally think that's a Scanner Darkie Lee, right? Uh, but Ubik, you can read it on a lot of different levels, right? Uh, on the one hand, uh, it's a kind of weird anti-hero story uh, with a cool sci-fi twist where you're not sure if people are living and dead or if they're in the real world or in the faux world. Uh, and they're always trying to sort that out for themselves. But on the other hand, you can also read it at a much deeper level as asking questions about how we understand what our reality is, uh, why it is that our sense of reality seems so tied uh, to our conception of ourselves as living beings uh, and the distortion that occurs if we start to think that we might die uh, and we believe that the whole world will fall away behind our eyes, or sorry, fall away in front of our eyes. It's a really, really interesting book. Uh, and you wouldn't even know that you were learning uh, all these interesting ideas when reading it because you're just kind of wrapped up in the story and the glittering prose and all the weird shit that's happening. Uh, he had a real talent for producing books that operated on several levels that way. Yeah. I mean, this actually is a good segue into a question I had for you. It's uh, So you, you began your essay, you were talking about uh, cultural theorist Frederick Jameson, science, where he said that uh, science fiction is about more than developing fantastic and pulpy entertainment and that science fiction reflects the anxieties and hopes we feel about the future, uh, understanding our relationships to the future in general. Do you have a personal belief on what is the pur purpose of science fiction? Well, I actually tend to agree with uh, Fred Jameson on this, right? So this is from his book, uh, Archaeologies of the Future, uh, where he's interrogating the concept of utopia uh, in our political imagination. Uh, very thoughtful book. Uh, and what I really like about this book also is that he takes sci-fi and fantasy extremely seriously uh, as genres of literature because he says that what they reflect is our kind of collective imaginary uh, in a way that other forms of fiction don't necessarily. Uh, so <laughs> I think he's a little harsh on this and I know people are going to give me shit for this. So I don't know if I agree with it, uh, but he characterizes fantasy, for example, as fundamentally a kind of reactionary genre in the sense that what you usually see in fantasy uh, is a kind of golden age mentality. Things were better back in the day. Yeah. Uh, and then these bad things kind of permeated into society, ruined it, deconstructed. And it's always about this aspiration to go back to something that we've lost. Uh, and the example it gives is Lord of the Rings, right? You know, if you read uh, Lord of the Rings, especially the Silmarillion, uh, you know, there's always this tendency to replicate cycles of rise, decline, fall, uh, and decay. Uh, and the happiest moments are when you get something like a restoration. Uh, so everybody's read Lord of the Rings. Uh, the last book is called Return of the King for a reason, right? Yeah. Uh, you reconsecrate authority uh, and the world gets better. Uh, and Dick's, or sorry, uh, Jameson says that sci-fi is a different genre. It's not backwards looking, it's forwards looking. Uh, and once upon a time, he says that a lot of sci-fi authors like H.G. Wells uh, use sci-fi as a way of theorizing about potential utopian futures right? Uh, ways that we could remake society for the better. Uh, and in this sense, it was a very optimistic genre. And it's actually with Dick, he says, that we can see a shift in our cultural expectations, uh, because it's where sci-fi went dark, right? Uh, yeah. And we started to think that 
even if technology will continue to improve, which it probably will, that does not mean the social world that we inhabit is necessarily going to get better. It could very well just become a lot more fucked up. And it's prescient uh, in that way. Uh, and remarkable. That's the only way to describe it. Uh, and what Jameson is talking about is uh, whether or not we could recover some of the utopian energies of science fiction to talk about alternative futures that could be better while not abandoning uh, this kind of, what's the way to put it, critical outlook uh, and wariness that Dick so essentially brought into the genre. This kind of stems a, a couple of questions for me. And one is, uh, surprisingly, I've never really heard anybody put it exactly that way before that uh, the fantasy genre, uh, specifically things like the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, that that's a counterpart to science fiction in that mm -hmm. uh, fantasy is the, it's the looking backward. So, you know, if, if sci-fi is looking forward to the future, uh, fantasy is looking to the past. Is that like a fair assessment of kind of what you meant by that? Yeah, that's Jameson's take on it. Uh, now, again, I'm not sure that I entirely agree because I think there is forward-looking fantasy out there. Uh, Philip Pullman's The Golden Compass would be a good example, right? Mm -hmm. But let's take Lord of the Rings and uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, two series, by the way, that I'm fond of. So, you know, don't give me hate, right? Yeah. I'm even watching fucking Amazon Prime's The Rings of Power because, you know, I'm a <laughs> fan. Uh, but, you know, what Jameson says you see in the structure of those books, uh, and Tolkien himself was a pretty conservative guy, right, is this belief that once upon a time in the past, we inhabited a golden age of some sort, right? Yeah. Uh, and this was aligned with the respect for a certain kind of authority that was gradually undermined by human selfishness, selfishness decadence, and decline. Uh, and... The story is always about how to restore this authority in some way and consequently to restore the world as a whole, metaphysically, right? Uh, yeah. And a good example of this, of course, is the whole plot of the Lord of the Rings itself, right? Uh, the Kingdom of Gondor uh, was once, you know, this resplendent realm. It defeated the Dark Lord and now he's back. Uh, and because there's no king any longer, the kingdom is a lot more vulnerable than it was before. Uh, so part of the story is about destroying the Ring of Power, uh, which will about an end to the hypermodernist aspirations of people like Sauron, but it's also about restoring this source of authority and consequently restoring the kingdom of Gondor and bringing back a sense of unity uh, and majesty to the world. Yeah. And it's very easy to see how this can be read in a highly conservative way, uh, even if it's a great story that's very well told, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas, and the same thing is true with the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Uh, you know, it's worth noting that C.S. Lewis himself was a pretty conservative Christian author, uh, we also wrote some good works of sci-fi, so sometimes he uh, uh, writes in a different mode, right? But the fundamental ethos of the Stars of Narnia, uh, again, is that we've lost a certain connection, or the children have lost a connection uh, with their Christian heritage. Uh, and the only way for them to recover that, since they don't know Jesus in our modern world, uh, is to go back to this fantasy realm while they were encounter Aslan, learn him uh, by his name there. This is the point in The Voyage of the Dawn Trader. Uh, and then know that he exists in the human world as well as Jesus. Uh, and this will help bring about a restoration of the Christian ethic uh, in their world, like the modern uh, um, world of the 20th century Britain. Uh, and it's a very interesting read uh, that Jameson gives of these texts, right? Um, yeah. Because he points out that this nostalgic vein, um, while it's very much a human uh, kind of thing to look back to the past and to want to find meaning in it uh, can sometimes be counterproductive uh, because maybe rather than thinking how do we get back to something that we've lost it might be worth asking ourselves 
what can we do to make sure that our future is better than the past? Uh, and this is what classical sci-fi used to do. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, man. It's it's cool to think about. Like, I just uh, I've never really, I guess, I guess I've just never taken the time to be thoughtful about Lord of the Rings in that in that way. And <laughs> and thought and and thought you know, because it's to me it is. I you know I understand there's like a lot of Christian undertones or even maybe overtones, and especially in obviously Chronicles of Narnia. But the the idea of them being reactionary and or even the the suggestion that Sauron is a hyper modernist these are like all things that are kind of new uh, thoughts to me. But before we go down that rabbit hole, well, uh, I just wanted to say though, like, <laughs> I mean, I think I'm a Tolkien fan, right? Uh, I mean, even though his politics don't align with mine, I still think this is again why you can appreciate something like that because there's a lot of levels that these books can work on, right? They can work just as a flat, good, interesting story. Uh, and you might just appreciate them uh, at that point. Uh, yeah. But what Jameson is, of course, doing is trying to get us to look at the deeper level, right? What does this say about our culture? Why are these books being written? Why is it that they are being responded to in this very powerful way? Uh, and I think fantasy and sci-fi, like all great works of literature, has to operate uh, at these various levels if it's really going to endure. You know, there's a reason why there's all kinds of crappy sci-fi and fantasy books out there uh, that you'll read and they're kind of fun and you just toss them out. Yeah. Uh, whereas people like Philip K. Dick or Tolkien, they endure, right? And that reminds me uh, to the other little question that had stemmed uh, from your previous statement earlier, uh, talking about, sorry, uh, Fre Frederick Jameson. I blinked on his name for a second. Uh, was that, uh, in a way, you were saying that Philip K. Dick was the beginning of a certain era, and that would mean that uh, previous to him, or prior to him, that would have been kind of the Jules Verne era, the Isaac Asimov era, and... Philip K. Dick brought a new depth to science fiction. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and he also brought a sense of pensivism, uh, according to Jameson, and I tend to agree with that. Uh, so one of the things that Jameson points out in his book, Archaeologies of the Future, is if you read not all of Asimov's stories, but a considerable chunk of them, uh, there is this expectation that the future can be better uh, and that the advance of human intelligence will allow us to solve the problems that emerge uh, and enable human humanity to progress in a certain way. Uh, now, I'm not sure if that's true of all of Eisenhower's work, because I think that the Foundation series uh, compromises that view of his work a little bit. But, you know, iRobot is a really interesting take on this, right? Where yeah. we invent artificial intelligence. Uh, there are problems that are posed by it initially, uh, and we have to kind of interpret the three laws of robotics appropriately in order to make sure that the robots do live their best life and work the way they're supposed to, but smart people are generally able to solve these problems one after another. You contrast that with uh, what you find in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, right? Where you have a similar kind of premise where humanity has invented artificial intelligences uh, and everything goes to shit, right? Uh, yeah. The androids aren't sure who they are because since they're modeled off of humanity, they get to deal with all our fucking existential malaise, right? Yeah. Uh, the future, even though we're very technologically advanced, doesn't look much better than the present. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's worse. We're governed by these extraordinary multinational corporations or even multi-planetary corporations uh, that wield life and death control over our life. Endemic poverty uh, is still a major thing. Uh, hasn't gone away despite the increase in material wealth uh, that's so transparent in the book. And people need to resolve uh, the problems in their life not by actually changing the world around them because the world looks more unchanging than anything uh, than ever before, uh, but by indulging in all the worst vices uh, of humanity, hedonism, sex, drugs, you name it, right? Uh, and it's a remarkable vision of the future that Dick pioneered. Uh, 
a dark one, right? Uh, and it couldn't be further away from the kind of sunny optimism of at least some of Asimov's uh, iRobot series. Yeah. Um, speaking of uh, our favorites of his books, that that happens to be my personal favorite. Oh, yeah. um, but moving on to more, more, I mean, more of the enduring relevance of Philip K. Dick and the philosophies. Uh, in discussing uh, the postmodern dystopias of Philip K. Dick, you wrote that Philip K. Dick's fiction was unique in its capacity to pose infuriating questions to its readers and that it conveys a looming sense of dread and anxiety about the future, uh, which might appear strange given how the all-American stability of the Eisenhower era gave way to the optimism and youthful energy of the 60s radicalism and drug culture. Uh, can you elaborate some on how Philip K. Dick saw the underlying existential crisis beneath the pop culture of wealth and prosperity. Yeah, absolutely. I think a very good example of this uh, is in my favorite of his books. Uh, sorry, uh, A Scanner Darkly, right, uh, about Bob Arctor. Uh, so what A Scanner Darkly really analyzes is the hangover from the 60s, right, where it's become very clear that a lot of these utopian aspirations that people put onto counterculture culture are being disappointed, right? So there are a couple of different ways that you can cash this out. Uh, one is just the most surface level, which is that the optimism around drug culture uh, that people like Adams Huxley had, uh, or a lot of the hippies had, uh, has now turned into a nightmare, right? Where yeah. people are addicted to all kinds of things, uh, particularly substance D, uh, and it's really messing them up, right? Uh, the second important thing is that uh, at a political level, the reaction to counterculture that emerged in the 60s has led the United States to increasingly become a police state, right? Where there are high levels of inequality. Uh, drug use is tolerated, uh, but only informally, right? Because no. the police have became, become more pervasive and are interrogating everybody's lies uh, in a way they never did before. So that's a political level in the book. But I think the more philosophically interesting level uh, is Dick points out how in the 60s, uh, there were these deep efforts to inquire into the nature of human identity uh, and this notion that you could kind of use drugs to reconceive your identity as you wish and to be anyone that you wanted in front of anyone else. Uh, that was seen as a kind of utopian prospect, right? I can just be who I want. Uh, whereas in the 1970s, uh, when the book is set, things have become really a nightmare, right? Where we don't know who we are any longer. We present one way to one person and another way to another to another person. Uh, because the police state is so ubiquitous, uh, we are constantly informing on one another um, because no one is considered fully innocent any longer because we're all culpable in the creation of this kind of society. Uh, and the optimism about the creative reinterpretation of identity has given way to this deep malaise uh, and a yearning for some kind of certainty about who we are, not just to uh, knowledge, uh, sorry, not just certainty for ourselves, but certainty on the part of other peoples. And it doesn't look like any of that is going to be forthcoming. And it's a really horrifying prospect. And you know what? This is a this is a bit off topic because we're talking, you know, a lot about these uh, these kind of grand sweeping uh, like philosophical kind of areas that he he uh, explores. And so on and so forth. I'm just I'm thinking about a scanner darkly, and it's been many, many years since I've read that book. But he also has this incredible ability sometimes to uh, provide just a piece of dialogue that will just stick oh, yeah. with you forever. And like I said, I read that book. I'm gonna say it's been at least 
15 years ago. And I, to this day, I can, I can remember quotes from it. And one of them is, there's a woman in the book, I can't remember her name. And she asks, the, uh, I guess, Arctur to come over, the main character, because there's a scary bug in her house. And it's a mosquito <laughs> hawk. And he goes, oh, don't worry about that. It's harmless. And she goes, if I had known it was harmless, I would have killed it myself. And it's just, uh, I think that's a really piercing and in, in interesting way to kind of show like, you know, and kind of what he's showing in the book is like, she's a fucked up kind of shitty person. Like, oh, it's harmless. Then I should have just killed it myself because it, it poses no threat to me. I, you know, it doesn't deserve to live. There's so many ways you could interpret it. But like I said, that just that bit of dialogue here I am 15 years later since I've read that book. And I still like remember clear as a bell going like, God, <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. And like Arthur's inner monologue where he's asking what the scanner sees when it looks into him, uh, you know, is it looking into me clearly or darkly is remarkable and haunting, right? Yeah. But I don't want to imply, and this is the kind of wonderful thing about Dick, uh, that if you're going to read this, it's like reading some fucking philosophical treaties, right? Yeah. Um, uh, or even if it's a book that's written that's exclusively critical of drug culture. Uh, I mean, Dick, let's be clear. Uh, he loved his substances like anybody else did, right? And he was very yeah. heavily involved in a lot of that stuff during the 60s. And he certainly wasn't uh, advocating becoming a narc or prude or something like that. Uh, the book is a really entertaining, chilling, interesting sci-fi story uh, about this world that doesn't actually look all that different from the one we live in, um, but, you know, is darker and more cynical uh, and harder to see through. Uh, and like all of his works, you can read it just as a good sci-fi story if you want. Uh, and actually, I'd really recommend that people watch the Richard Linklater film with Keanu Reeves, it's kind of darkly. It's a great adaptation of it. Uh, I was going to say that I think it's the, out of all the Hollywood films, I would say it might be the one that hits closest to the book. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Even in its tone, right? Uh, I mean, anybody who's experimented with drugs or alcohol uh, will kind of recognize what's going on here, right? Some days you just kind of wake up and you're hungover and your buddies are there and you go to the diner and you talk about shit and everything's a little hazy and everything's kind of hard to understand and you're not sure whether people are being sincere or not. It really captures the kind of vibe of the book very well that way. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, you can also look at the book uh, as a kind of philosophical treatise or as stuff that has a lot of substance to it if you want. Uh, so when I read it, what really occurred to me was again how what Arthur seems to be looking for is something like God, some source of transcendence that can affirm his identity for him, tell him who he is. And what's chilling about the world that he encounters is that the closest thing to God is the scanner, right? That is supposed to tell him who he happens to be. And yet rather than being a source of transcendence or insight, uh, it's a tool of repression, right? Uh, and it's constantly looking into him, interrogating him and judging him. And it's a very kind of chilling way uh, to think about how the technologies of repression that we develop to make us feel safer are in fact things that can pollute our sense of identity so profoundly and alienate us from others. Uh, the line you said about the bug is a really good example of this because what Dick is projecting here is a world where people have become so callous and so removed uh, and so lacking in empathy. Uh, that's something that is completely harmless presents itself to them as an opportunity to exercise their control. Uh, and so if it is harmless, the only thing to do is to squash it, right? Yeah. Uh, just to feel the sense of power that gives you a sense of identity and security for a little while. None of us want to fucking live in that world, right? Absolutely. And to your point, uh, when, yeah, like a scanner darkly is, is a hype is, a, you know, it's highly critical of the drug culture, but at the same time, 
you know, we could just say allegedly Philip K. Dick himself, you know, like I said in the beginning, he wrote 44 novels and 121 <laughs> short stories, and he had a little bit of help uh, from, let's just say, narcotics from time to time. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the thing, though. I mean, whenever you listen to like these Jordan, like Jordan Peterson types or whatever, right? Or like, well, you know, you should clean your room and stay focused and that'll allow you to be more productive. That's true for a lot of us. Uh, I sometimes fucking wonder how it is that Dick managed to accomplish all that uh, while apparently maintaining an active uh, social life, touring around the country to promote his books uh, and apparently doubling down on a lot of these substances for a long period of time because boy, oh boy, uh, was he prolific, right? In a short life yeah. also. Yeah, a very, a very short life. He did not live to be very old. I was, I guess, about around 50, I think. And I, I mean, I think you might attribute a short life to some of what we were just discussing, because I think maybe he yeah. might have gotten his hands, especially in the 1950s, when uh, amphetamines were basically legal and easily ready, you know, readily available. Maybe gotten a little bit of uh, speed and just cranked out an entire book. I think <laughs> that's that's one way to do it. Oh yeah, um, he died when he was 53, right? And apparently he was working on a whole bunch of new stuff, but um, he produced this gigantic work of theology uh that you know full disclosure i've never read uh near the end of his life that apparently is very interesting and very insightful and very fucked up also right uh but he always struck me as a guy who was just relentlessly energetic and imaginative right his yeah. dumb brain uh was singularly his greatest gift and his greatest curse because it compelled him to produce these almost remarkable works of the imagination right uh, that almost no one else could do. Uh, and yet at the same time, you get the sense that he was a guy who sometimes just wanted to be able to settle into his life in a way that his own mind would never let him. Uh, and that really comes through, I think, in a lot of fiction and the kind of characters that he always presents us with, who are these deeply troubled, deeply alienated, always very smart individuals uh, who are just not sure how to make sense of their world any longer. And uh, like, like I said, he wrote 44 novels and we're only going to have time to touch on a couple of them. Uh, but moving on from that to uh when you were uh discussing the book uh flow my tears the policeman said uh you wrote that dick presents us with a figure whose material needs are all cared for but whose sense of self is so wrapped up in how he appears to others that his entire quest is for the police state to recognize him and affirm his ego can you explain what is uh philosophically at the core of this and its relevance to the modern society that we live in now well, I think it's never been more relevant, right? If you think about this era of social media, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. I think about this a lot as somebody who's very online, right? But what is social media except an attempt uh, to get a sense of affirmation from people who do not love us, uh, who very well might not even be there. They might just be bots, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and through a system that is as mechanical and artificial as any that has ever existed, right? Uh, yeah. And it's, it's extraordinarily uh, addicting. Uh, and I think that... Dick anticipated a lot of these yearnings uh, in Flow My Tears, the policeman said, because you confronted uh, with a guy, Tavner, right, uh, who's generally pretty comfortable in his life. Uh, he's upper middle class uh, at the very minimum. He's handsome. Uh, he's gotten all of his sexual needs cared for, that's for sure, right? Uh, and yet he's deeply unhappy because uh, at a certain point he realizes that the only real gratification he gets is from being affirmed by other people that he doesn't even care that much about, right? Yeah. Uh, and that includes also being affirmed uh, by an authoritarian police state that 
absolutely no one admires and everyone thinks is repressive, right? And so the kind of very dark comedy of the book is when the police state forgets about him, which most of us would think would be a good thing, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm now free to kind of live my life without the burdens uh, of being dominated. Uh, he is desperately trying to reclaim his identity so that he can be reinterpolated into the repressive state apparatus, as Althusser would put it, right? Yeah. Uh, and you might think that's fucking absurd, but Dick makes it very clear why this compulsion to be recognized or affirmed, even by the forces that repress us, can be extremely powerful, especially in a context where we don't have any more meaningful social relations that we can look to. We don't have people that love and care for us. So the best that we can do is to be acknowledged uh, by something that's extraordinarily alien and alienating. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, to uh, I didn't I did not draw that that parallel, but in you know, in modern society, these the social media phenomenon, which is something that there's no way he could have guessed we would yeah. have that. But God knows really, what he would have written about it if he had fucking lived to see like but Twitter he, and Instagram, right? But he nailed it. Uh, yeah. So that is, yeah, that is an excellent uh, parallel to draw, man. I didn't even think about that. Uh, so actually, just briefly uh, earlier, you brought up uh, the book. Is it pronounced Ubik or Ubik? Yeah, Ubik. Ubik. Uh, in discussing uh, Ubik, you wrote that human beings have discovered a way of avoiding death by entering into cryogenic chambers where their bodies are frozen in a half-life. They are occasionally able to communicate with others, but it is a lonely and fragmentary existence, which I immediately recognize as something like that our goofy modern-day billionaires are certainly working on making into a reality for themselves, uh, no yep. doubt. Uh but can you explain the message of this book and its implications that are still relevant today? Yeah, absolutely. So Dick was always very interested uh, in theology, particularly Gnostic forms of theology. So this is my read on the book. And I want to say it's a very deep, very complicated book, so I could very well be wrong, right? Uh, but the kind of premise of the book is that very wealthy people are now living in kind of half-life in cryogenic chambers uh, where a combination of computer programs in their own mind will create a simulated reality for themselves that they can partially share with other people who are also linked in these chambers, right? And they can yeah. maybe communicate with people outside of them. Uh, the problem is, of course, that they're still dying or they're still almost dead. Uh, and in the event that their world collapses around them, then they will finally pass into nothing. Uh, so they need to use Ubik uh, in order to kind of re-solidify their reality for themselves and to continue living in this kind of half-life. Uh, and actually, in a lot of um, it's a spray can, right? Is how it appears to them, right? A spray can where you literally repaint uh, your world around you, and then you're like, all right, it'll be fine for now. Okay. And <laughs> the way that I read this uh, was how people are searching for what's sometimes called a symbolic guarantor of meaning uh, and metaphysical stability, right? Where we're always left with this deep sense of uncertainty about whether or not the world that we inhabit is actually real. And so we look for things that will tell us that it is, right? Uh, whether or not it's God or Ubik or technology um, or power, you know, there's all kinds of things that can fill it in with. And what becomes really apparent at the end of the novel is they're not sure what Ubik is, right? Is it power that's filling in these cracks? Is it technology? Uh, is it just their own mental projections? Is it God, right? That's actually trying to send them a message uh, or keep their reality uh, congealed? Uh, and are these things good or bad? Uh, it's really left ambiguous. Uh, but what 
comes through is this chase for some symbolic guarantor of meaning yeah. uh, and how that seems to be a deeply human learning, regardless of how technologically advanced we become, because otherwise our death becomes intolerable to us. We can't comfortably die unless we know that there'll be some significance to our life. Okay. Yeah. That's I'm sorry. That's just a, that's a lot to hit somebody with. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a really, it's a really deep book. Right. And uh, this relates back to, uh, again, some of his Gnostic theology, right. Where, uh, Dick believed at one point that the world that we inhabit right now, uh, this is kind of like the Matrix, right, uh, isn't actually the real world, uh, that it has been put in front of us by the devil, right, uh, or by a satanic force at the very least, uh, in order to occlude the fact that there is a real world out there. Uh, this is the world that God wants us to experience where we'll be eternally happy. Uh, and yet we remain fundamentally attached to seeing reality this way uh, because it's a lot easier to do. Uh, and we're desperately afraid that if we stop seeing reality this way, that we're going to fade away into nothingness. Uh, and so what you find in Dick uh, is in his own theology, right, uh, is this real sense of anxiety about abandoning our way, the way the world appears to us. Uh, with this sense of hope that maybe if we learn to think about the world in a different way, uh, new horizons of human possibility that will be better for us will open up. Uh, and like a lot of authors who have deep religious concerns, you can see him playing around with these ideas, I think, in almost all of his work uh, in very interesting ways. Ubik is just one where this becomes a little bit more foregrounded. Uh, Vallis also. You know, I know that we just talked about Scanner Darkly quite a bit, but I feel like we're not quite done with the Scanner Darkly. Uh for a few reasons. I mean, it's, and like you said, it's your favorite. It's one of the, I oh, mean, yeah. it's definitely by any measure, it's one of his greatest books, but uh, you know, it's a, it's a true masterpiece. And like I said earlier, it's Hollywood's best attempt at staying true to the source material of a Philip K. Dick book, in my opinion. Oh, uh, yeah. You wrote that uh, everyone in this world uh, scans and watches one another uh, tolerant of their many failing and meager criminal rebellions, but searching for signs of deeper descent which never emerge. Eventually, the main character realizes that the system has uh, grown so omnipresent that it has taken on a life of its own, independent of the people who are supposed to be running it. Uh, you know, in some ways, to me, uh, it makes me think of the current state of capitalism in general. You know, it's taken on a life of its own, certainly. Uh, but do you have any opinions on how the philosophy of this book is applicable to our our society in other ways? Oh, I think so. Uh, I think there's a lot to be said about this. Um, so I talked a little bit about the theology before. Maybe I'll get into a little bit more of the politics. The way that I read this book uh, is very much the way that Fred Jameson, who's a Marxist theorist, read it, right? Which is that one of the weird features of human existence is the fact that we will create institutions to benefit us. Um, things like the capitalist market, right? Uh, and these are free acts of creation on our part, right? We create the market society that then governs us. But what's really odd is the fact that the institutions that we create, even though they only exist through us, can then take on a life of our own and appear to us as these kind of alien and even oppressive forces. Right? Yeah. Uh, that's true of law. It's true of government. It's true of the market economy. Right. And I think that Dick captured this sense really well in The Scanner Darkly, where there's this real sense of sadness on the part of the character because it's not like this repressive police state is actually some inhuman entity, right? Uh, it's something that we all have to participate in and generate in order for it to continue functioning. And yet, precisely because none of us knows how to do anything about it, 
it presents itself as this inhuman entity that's governing over us, uh, that's constantly watching us. Uh, and that's almost like the dark child of our worst impulses, if you want to put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and I think the sense of bleakness uh, that comes from that, that we are going to be responsible for creating the very things that will then repress and dominate us uh, is a really kind of tragic aspect of human existence universally uh, that he captured very successfully through the medium of sci-fi. And I think what he worried about was very much what uh, Alice Huxley worried about in Brave New World, that all the kind of things human beings do that we, that we, all the kind of things that human beings do to try to make us happy might in the long run become perverted and generate the conditions for us to be tremendously unhappy and tremendously submissive. Uh, and it's a very insightful and very perverse possibility that he raises in that book that personally, I'm deeply afraid might very well end up coming true. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess my uh, interpretation earlier about capitalism, it has a lot of close similarities to the to the police state. That they you know that's taken on a life of its own in a scanner darkly and it's interesting too because when he was when he wrote that that was kind of during america's like when capitalism had reached its peak that was kind of its golden era but i guess also in a way maybe he could draw on some you know in modern history and this is probably closer to it would be nazi germany because that was something oh, yeah. that once it once it had been built and once the machine was going no one individual could really do much about it and it's not like uh that hitler was some kind of superhuman that could impose this power. It was truly just a construct of the mind that everyone in Germany had accepted. And then the sum of, you know, the parts, nobody had the juice or the power to stop the machine. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I mean, one of his most popular books, uh, and also a really great book is the man in the high castle that deals exactly with this subject matter, right? So the man in the high castle for people who don't know, uh, is a kind of speculative book about what would happen if Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan won the war and occupied the United States. Uh, also made into a TV series that I haven't read, or sorry, watched yet, but I'll probably get around to it at some point. Uh, but, you know, the presentation of life under Nazi Germany is that initially for people who aren't Jewish, right, at least, uh, it might not seem that bad. Life is kind of continuing the way it did before, just under a repressive state apparatus. But what becomes really clear underneath that is the tremendous sense of sadness uh, that pervades everyone in this book uh, that they're not even necessarily able to articulate until uh, they see what's considered to be a fictional film about what would happen if the Allies had actually won the war. Uh, and if the film kind of <laughs> depicts the real history of the world that we lived in, right? Yeah. Uh, and people are entranced by this, uh, but they think it's a fantasy, right? They're not sure how the world could have actually ended up being that way. Uh, and a couple of the characters go off to try to find out who made this film, but they're really concerned about whether or not this is actually intended to be a kind of insurrectionary piece of art about how the world could be different, or if it's part of the system itself using this as bait to kind of co-op people who might have these insurrectionary feelings uh, and then kill them uh, or imprison them or anything like that, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think what comes through in this book really, really well uh, is the fact that the worst kinds of oppression that we experience uh, in some respects might not even necessarily be the physical. It's the kind of oppression that reaches into your soul and makes you think that a different world is not possible. Uh, and by presenting us with a world where the Nazis won and the actual world that appear that occurred is taken to be fiction, he highlights this very, very, very acutely. And the kind of sadness that emerges from this idea that 
this is just the crappy world you live in and there's really no way of changing it. Uh, and anything else that you could potentially fantasize about is just fiction. Yeah. And it's not that far off. People don't, you know, often think that, you know, the war in the Pacific, the United States won that through luck or maybe a miracle, uh, depending on how you want to look at it. You know, a lot of that was just uh, like a very fortunate typhoon is, is what gave the the U.S. the chance to win in that theater. And then also, yeah, in the uh, on the Western Front, you know, if Germany had made maybe a couple different tactical decisions, we could have easily lost that war as well. So anyway, it's, oh, it's, absolutely. Not, I mean, it's not far off base. No, not at all, right? I mean, who the fuck knows what would have happened if a couple of people made different decisions here or there, right? Uh, I mean, it's hard to crystal ball that um, by looking back on the past. But what's chilling about um, the man in the high castle is just how plausible the scenario that he rolls out is, uh, but also what it teaches us about, again, uh, the worst kinds of oppression that we experience, the sense that there is no hope because there is no alternative uh, to the reality that we live in. I think that the sense of sadness and bleakness that induces is something that he captures probably better than almost any other author I can think of. Um, you wrote that uh, Dick's Portrait of the Future greatly resembles the work of Mark Fisher, uh, yeah. who similarly wrote about how changing technological times uh, need not engender a more meaningful and satisfied society. And his sense that all our increased powers have done little actually to solve the important riddles in human life. Uh, one, do you think this is true? And two, do you think that the works of Philip K. Dick had a prophetic quality or should they be viewed as cautionary tales? Oh, I think they definitely had a prophetic quality. Like I said, if you look at Flow My Tears, the policeman said uh, that was a book that was written uh, mid-century uh, when he projected this idea that our sense of alienation from one another will mean that we will desperately look to people who do not love us and do not care through artificial mechanisms to get any sense of affirmation, right? Uh, I mean, that is truer today uh, than it was then. And it's becoming more true by the day, quite frankly, right? Which is why everyone should read that book and kind of, I don't say get off of social media. I mean, I'm involved in it as heavily as anyone else is, but definitely kind of check yourself uh, and ask yourself why it is that we all feel this compulsion to do this so prominently, right? But in terms of uh, Fisher's relationship to Dick, I think that what Fisher would probably read Dick as more of somebody who is offering a cautionary tale. Uh, Because again, what you really find in Dick is this sense of how disappointing life will be if it becomes the case that the systems that we create to make us happy end up oppressing us and oppressing us so powerfully that we've come to think that there is no alternative to the world that we happen to live in Uh, because any system of oppression uh, that human beings resist was invariably created by human beings that's the kind of weird paradox of oppression right Uh, that we create the very things that we hate and have to live under them Uh, and dick at least seems to have had a kind of utopian sensibility in some of his works that echoes these earlier forms of sci-fi like isaac asimov particularly in books like phallus or even at the end of a scanner darkly right where there's a kind of little hint uh, that this whole apparatus will be brought down by Bob Arctor once he infiltrates uh, the actual drug pushers who turn out to be the police, right? Yeah. Uh, they're pushing the drugs that they then <laughs> use to imprison people, right? Uh, by contrast, Fisher says he's not sure that we're in a moment where we can be optimistic or hopeful any longer because we've entered the end of history period, right? Uh, one where there's nothing really all that new that's being produced because people don't actually think that anything really new, socially speaking, is ever going to come into the world. So Fisher says, if you go to the cinema, for example, and you wonder why it is that you just get 
and this remakes, uh, rehashes, uh, reboots or soft reboots of the same thing. It's because when you live in a world where we can't imagine how things will look any differently than they are today, uh, what is there left to do except to endlessly recycle the past in new and various forms, recast people for old roles, you know, yeah. uh, reboot, remash and, you know, uh, remake everything. Uh, and he says that in some ways, uh, this is obviously something we all indulge in. Uh, and it's not necessarily bad because it can be entertaining. Uh, but he says it also reflects this deeply human need uh, for a better world than the one that we have on offer. Uh, and the fact that people seem to be really tired of a lot of that and want something new, uh, both culturally and socially, is an itch that hasn't scratched in a long time. And he's very worried that the powers that be aren't going to want to allow anything new to emerge because, of course, that's not in their interest. And that's why I think there's a lot of Philip K. Dick uh, in Fisher's writing. Yeah, and I, I don't know why you kind of made me think this, but sometimes when we talk about Philip K. Dick in this way, it gets it almost comes across as though this is like reading his books is some kind of like chore or an eat your vegetables type, you know, <laughs> yeah. activity. And it's, and like we, I think we said in the beginning, it's really not is he manages to pack all these ideas and thoughts into really great action, moving, <laughs> uh, well-written sci-fi books that are fun. So that's just my opinion on the, on the Philip K. Dick library. Hey, absolutely. And I would say that's even true of some of the fucking best movies that are based on his uh, books. Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can just fucking put Blade Runner on or Minority Report uh, and enjoy it as a good sci-fi film where a lot of shit blows up and it's well acted uh, and there's a couple of thoughtful themes in them. Uh, or you can sit there and be like, hey, let's grab a beer and let's have a discussion about like what it was actually you know, about uh, in terms of the subsects and the uh, philosophical and political commentary. Right. And really very few authors are able to do that create something that works on all those levels, which is why I think he's, again, just probably uh, one of the top five American authors of the 20th century, bar none. Absolutely. And uh, I just, sorry, I, I have to say this when it comes to uh, Total Recall. Wait, wait. So, no, 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 not not Total Recall. Uh, Blade Runner. That's what I meant to say. It's yeah. the only movie that I truly have a bone to pick with. And I will, I'll keep it brief. I've, I, I brought this up on a different podcast, not on my own, but on another one where I was just venting my frustration that th there's certain things that the movie omits. I understand that's it's because it's Hollywood that, you know, it's, it's a different, it's a different uh, medium. It's more kinetic. There's things they have to do, but the fact that they leave out the religion that the whole reason why the main character, his entire motivation, he is trying to purchase a biological sheep. He has an electric sheep and it, it's, and it's for uh it's because everyone has to worship an animal. And so, but it's very, it's almost impossible to afford a real one. So everyone's got an, an Android animal of some sort. Anyway, I just find that to be like so integral to the plot and to the motivations that, and in the extended uh, Blade Runner, they do briefly touch on it, but I think it's such a hugely important part of the uh, book is that everyone uh, wears a mood regulator and controls their mood at all times. They like just type in a number and they're like, I'm, I'm going to feel happy and productive today and his wife continuously keeps messing with her mood regulator and giving herself like suicidal depression just because she's messing with uh the mood regulator it's not even like she actually has that emotion i don't know i feel like it would have been cool to add that stuff to the movie <laughs> oh 100 right uh, i mean i've never been one of those people who actually thinks that movie is as good uh some people think it is uh i think there are better dick adaptations out there 
I mean, I think that I appreciate it more as a important bit of cinema history because uh, it introduced cyberpunk to a lot of people. And don't get me wrong, visually, especially for the time, it's mind-boggling, right? But yeah. I actually think Blade Runner 2049 is the more substantial movie uh, because it tackles a lot of the kind of questions that you're talking about. Uh, I mean, fucking forget not being able to afford a uh, actual animal. Uh, so you get a synthetic one instead. That movie points out that for a lot of people, even basic human love and sex has become impossible. Uh, so we need to get artificial uh, beings that will console us uh, and, yeah. and gratify our most basic urges. Uh, and I mean, I'm not sitting there to slam that either. I mean, what's uh, very heavily implied by 2049 is, of course, is that the androids uh, and the artificial creations also want to connect with us. And they're frustrated that they can't do so because uh, of these limitations. So I tend to think that that movie is a richer uh, take on that universe than Ridley Scott's original. Um, the way I would compare it is almost to the Terminator films. You know, the first Terminator yep. is kind of like the appetizer. Uh, the second one is the main course. And boy, oh boy, what a fucking main course it is. So I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that you're not, you have problems <laughs> with that movie. Uh, it's a really interesting and really innovative first draft uh, of something better that came along. I am extremely happy to hear you say that because that is my personal opinion that I've held ever since 2049 came out. It is the more substantial film. I enjoyed it more. I know that the, the problem with it, the problem with saying it to certain people is that Blade Runner is a just such a beloved film. It's uh, nostalgic. Everyone loves it so much that, you know, they don't want to hear you criticize it for any reason. So I try not to. It's because it's a good movie. But I yeah, I love that you said that the uh, this. The sequel really just kind of gets more to the point of what Philip K. Dick was actually writing about. So, uh, well, when people agreed. ever give you that bullshit, just fucking roll the argument out that I do. I'm like, listen, if it was such a fucking perfect movie, then Ridley Scott wouldn't have released like, what is it, like five, six fucking editions of it to yeah. try to get it perfect, <laughs> right? Even he seems to think like there are things that he wanted to tinker with. So, it's a flawed masterpiece, is what I usually use, right? Uh, yeah. Whereas 2049 is just a masterpiece masterpiece right and there's nothing wrong with saying uh they took a pass at it they did a pretty good job and then they perfected it the second time around yeah absolutely and uh you know shout out ridley scott but yeah like oftentimes i feel like he comes out with something that's uh it's like a really great idea and then it develops into something into something better later <laughs> because that was my oh, opinion 100%. with uh alien and i know that james cameron shot the second film but in my opinion aliens is the superior film and of course, I agree with you 100% that between ter Terminator 2 is one of the greatest films of all time. And Terminator, like you said, it's an appetizer. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a setup for the Exactly, right. And hey, like, there's nothing fucking wrong with that. I mean, we should be happy that every once in a while they can actually make a fucking sequel that is better than the original, right? Uh, or that takes what the original did well and puts it into overdrive, right? And I'd say that Blade Runner 2049, T2... Uh, Dark Knight are films that do that, right? So, oh yeah, you know. Dark Knight, absolutely. Oh man, I mean, talk about a, a sequel eclipsing its uh, first film. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, ba Batman Begins is a great movie, but fucking everybody sits there and knows that uh, Dark Knight is a superior film, right? Uh, and so, you know, I don't think uh, people got have strong opinions about this. And hey, listen, whatever your opinion of those two movies are, that's fine. You know, if you think Blade Runner, uh, the original, is better than twenty forty nine. All power to you. I'm glad you enjoy it. I like the movie a lot also. Uh, I just think that both in terms of its artistic merits and in terms of its film-like qualities, uh, I like 2049 better. And I do think it is truer to Dick's original intention also. 
Yeah, man. I mean, shit, I have, uh, I've got no qualms about going on here and saying outlandish claims about movies. Cause I fucking straight up, we did an episode and I said that, uh, I said, I, I liked Dr. Sleep better than the shining. Uh, surprisingly, <laughs> I couldn't believe the amount of uh, support I got from that from listeners. I mean, obviously a lot of people were telling me I was a dumb asshole and I, you know, I should never have said the, the things I said, but it's, these are opinions, man. These are, it's film. It's subjective. Matt, Love both I, of those films I should say. I've got uh, one last thing to ask you, man. It's the most important question of the day. Where can people uh, check out your writing, your books, your articles, uh, everything, and just follow you? Yeah, thanks, man. So uh, you can add me uh, at Matt Paul Prof uh, on Twitter. Uh, you can also send me an email at Matt McManus uh, 300 at gmail.com. Um, I do my best to kind of respond to those things. Uh, and if people are interested in seeing stuff where I uh, hash out some of these ideas a little bit more, uh, you can read my book, The Emergence of Postmodernity. Uh, it's definitely a pretty academic tone uh, and it's pricey, but, you know, get it through the library um, if you can uh, or email me. And maybe I can uh, find a way to get you a cheap copy somehow. So, yeah, that's what I'd say about that. Yeah. And also, yeah, uh, that's always a thing that you can do that also is good for the author is if, um, if you can't afford the book, ask your local, local library to purchase it. They will. And the bo- a book still gets sold. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually probably the best way to do things for authors because uh, people pay a lot more fucking attention if they're like, oh, libraries are picking this up than, uh, sorry to say, you know, just some random Joe is buying one book. So, yeah, if yeah. you want to get a copy and you don't want to pay a full price, I completely understand. You know, I'm pretty poor myself. So get it through the library uh, as a democratic socialist. I'm all for using public institutions, right? Yeah. Support your local library. Yeah. Uh, Matt, it has been such a pleasure having you on the podcast, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, you too, buddy. Um, It was great talking to you, and I'm glad we got around to doing this. Uh, Let's do it again sometime.